0: Welcome to Inside My Canoe Head, episode 001, the start of our first series on Individual Emergency Preparedness 101 attitude and government. I'm your host, Jeff. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. As promised in the introduction, we will give you probably 15 or 20 minutes of uh, some great thoughts some great discussion on the topic. And then we'll leave you with some um, questions to ponder over the week before the next episode comes out. I need to ask two simple questions. Why do I think this is important? And why do I think you should listen to me? And I need to answer both of those to take your time today. So first and foremost, why do I think this is important? Well, obviously, we're all living through a COVID-19 environment, or at least this podcast is being recorded in the middle of COVID-19. Um, we have an increase in number of natural disasters as a result of climate change. And we have a number of other radical governments that are existing around the world that are taking a number of steps that influence Our individual lives. I think it's easy and we can all agree that collectively there's a lot of things going on in life that are affecting how you get to operate your day-to-day life and things that are happening external to you that are, for whatever reason, influencing you individually, your household, and how you wish to live your life. And therefore, I think it's important to discuss. It's also important because all the academic studies out there have shown that no matter what messaging has been delivered by governments at all levels across all OECD countries, not just Canada and the United States specific, but even though the messaging has been clear, the messaging has been accurate, and the messaging has been delivered on all possible mediums out there, at best, Canadians score at 48% prepared when compared against the list of recommended precautions taken, by the average citizen. So whether you look at Public Safety Canada's campaign, whether you look at the Government of Ontario's campaign, or the Government of the Yukon, or you look at a general municipality, the city of Toronto, the city of Halifax, the city of Ottawa, they all have individual campaigns out there suggesting exactly what you should do. When each and every one of those studies are done on targeted groups from any one of these populations, the result comes back and the numbers are exactly somewhere between 17 and 48 percent in the best case scenario of canadian families are actually prepared so we're not prepared and i know you're listening to this and you probably can look yourself in the mirror and say quite frankly i was surprised I was surprised by the COVID-19, I was taken aback, I wasn't ready for this, this has caused a large disruption in my life. It's very uncomfortable, it's not what I was looking forward to, it's not what 2020 hadn't planned when January 1st came around and I was putting my new year's resolution, it was not, I'd like to survive a pandemic this year. No, not of course, but you were surprised and it has caused a considerable disruption in your life and it's probably not something that you're very comfortable with. So therefore, why did this happen? Why did I let myself get into this position? Why were these effects happening? What went wrong? And how can I live a more resilient and self-reliant lifestyle? Why should you should listen to me? Well, I'm a 28-year Army veteran, so I've been to some pretty interesting places and done some pretty interesting things. That aside, I have a master's degree in disaster and emergency management, and I'm currently halfway through my PhD in public policy and what I'm studying my area of expertise is individual emergency preparedness so quite literally for the last eight years I have been studying and examining this issue from both the individual perspective the collective the government and an organizational perspective from a business continuity but specifically I'm writing my PhD dissertation on individual emergency preparedness so I have essentially as a result of doing this research read everything that's ever been written in gray literature, in academic literature, uh, in novels, and looked across the whole spectrum of possibilities and outcomes. So what I'm offering you is an educated opinion. What I'm offering you is what reality actually says, uh, what research tells us, what the true goals of the government and other organizations are. So, but let's be honest here. The, the, the title of the episode is about attitude and government. So we're going to bring you this series in five episodes. This first episode on attitude and government is going to focus on the f- principal fact that individual emergency preparedness is not about stockpiles of equipment. It is about your mindset first and foremost. Uh, philosophers and scholars have always said, and experts will tell you the same thing in the field of bushcraft, survivalism, preparedness, all these other things, They will tell you that your number one main principle, ally, and weapon in any difficult struggle in human existence is your brain. It is not the tools in your hand. It is not the equipment in your room. It is is your brain and the power of the mind. And therefore, we have to focus our attitude on adopting and accepting the need for and the reality for an emergency preparedness mindset. Now, attitude is all about philosophy. And when we mean by philosophy, we mean the lens through which you look at the world. In academia, whenever you write a paper or wherever you you do a, a body of research on something, they call it a theoretical framework. And for disaster and emergency management as a discipline, as a separate academic discipline, it's actually fairly young. And so what it's doing is it's drawing the majority of literature and the basis for discussion off of the other principal social sciences such as sociology psychology anthropology and it's using a lot of the the discussions that are done in those disciplines about how we analyze things within the disaster and emergency management so if you think of as a lens let me give you an example if you are somebody who is considered to be a feminist Uh, If you're somebody who wants to study gender analysis when it comes to events and look at it through a gender lens or look at it through a feminist lens, when you look at a set of data or a set of events, you're looking at it from the perspective of a viewpoint you have. And so emergency preparedness is a viewpoint. It is a lens through which you look at events. And I'll give you a prime example. During this COVID-19 and and throughout his presidency, Donald Trump has had many... um, broadcasts that he's done or or press conferences now let's be frank i'm not this is not about pro trump anti-trump this is about using donald trump as a prime example because donald trump because he is such a polarizing figure you will see his uh, broadcast analyzed all around the world you will see it broadcast at dw in germany france 24 you'll see it sky news you'll see it bloomberg news you'll see all the mainstream media in the united states here in canada you'll see it all across the world Okay, so they all look at the same set of events. But you then watch the newscast that evening, and you watch MSNBC, and you watch Fox News, one of which believes that Trump is the great Satan, and the other one believes Trump is the great savior. And the lens through which they look at what Donald Trump says, when you listen to those newscasts, you will wonder whether two separate, completely different events occurred. And the same thing you know, somewhere along that spectrum, when you listen to all the other international news segments, the Canadian news segments, the American, even the Australian New Zealand news segments, when they're broadcasting and talking about Donald Trump, what they're offering you is two things. Every time you hear a media focus, you hear a fact and you hear an analysis. Those are two things that come across in every news. It's basic journalism 101. You tell the facts, and then you give an analysis. So now you have to look, what are you supposed to do with that information that you're presented? So what we do is we look at it through a philosophy, and, and I'm going to use Stoicism just for this one example. Stoicism uh, is is an old philosophy. It's it's kind of uh, genre. It's in it's in vogue, shall we say, right now. It's based upon the writings of three principal Epicurus... Uh, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, who was a former emperor of Rome. And he wrote a book called Meditations. And it actually wasn't his book, it was all of his personal diaries that were somehow found and, and rescued and translated out long after his death. And basically, what it says is Stoicism tells you that there are two things that you can control what you say and what you do. And those are the only two things you control. Everything else is outside of your personal control. Stoicism also teaches that everything in the world that happens it just is it just is no event is good or bad no event causes anger everything that happens in the world around you just is you based upon your own ethical platform will decide whether an event that occurs is good or bad you will then decide as an individual what your emotional reaction to that will be do you choose to be angry do you choose to be happy so what stoicism is saying if you link it to modern journalism is saying Modern journalism is giving you the facts. They're also giving you an opinion. You are not concerned and you are basically park and get rid of their analysis. You look at the facts and you say, okay, from an emergency preparedness perspective, you're looking at the event that just occurred and you're looking at the facts that you're being presented by the media and you're asking yourself, how do those facts affect my life? I know how I want to live my life. I know where I'm living my life and what I'm doing and what my plans are in my future, how is this set of facts going to affect my life and will it? And if it won't, great, fun, it's interesting news, maybe I'll consume it, maybe I won't. But I'm always looking for that piece of information that gives me a a pause. A uh, hmm, You know what? Maybe this might have an effect on my life and therefore I need to do a little bit more analysis on it. Something like a report coming out of Wuhan in China that said something along the lines of, you know, there's an uncontrollable outbreak and China's building massive hospitals in six days or less. And when that's happening, that's probably something you take advantage of. And you look at that fact and you ask yourself, okay, how does this affect my life and how does it affect uh, decisions? Will it affect my life? How does it work on things? Um, And then from that, you'd be able to make decisions. Why is this important to understand? Because let's put it this way. The principal question that you have to ask if you wish to adopt a preparedness mindset and have an appropriate attitude when you examine events is you simply have to answer the question, who is responsible for my outcomes? Who is responsible for my success? Who's responsible to come save me? Is somebody else responsible to come save me? And I'll give you, it's a, academia talks a lot about, in both sociology and psychology, this concept of victimization, which means there's a certain segment of the population that believes things happen to them, that they are not responsible. I.e., let's let's give you a quick little example. You take an individual who has lost their job because the government has put restrictions on what businesses can be open. They're now off, and the government supplements that they're getting is not the same amount of money as they earned before, and therefore they cannot make their weekly or monthly bills. And they're in a very precarious and dangerous situation. They don't have enough money to pay their existing bills, and they're in need. So if somebody who believes in victimization would say, I'm in this position because COVID-19 happened, or I'm in this position because the government has ordered my Employer to shut down, therefore cut off my benefits and my wages. Or they might say, I'm a victim because the benefits that are being offered to me from the government don't equal the money that I had before, and therefore somebody else's action has caused me to now have a reduced income. Emergency preparedness mindset. He you looks yourself in the mirror and says, I am in this position because I did not adequately prepare to insulate myself and my responsibilities from an external shock. The fact that within a couple of weeks of me losing my job, I am in a financial position where I cannot pay my bills. And that's what this series is about, giving you the tools to ensure that the next time something like this external shock or disruption in your life occurs, that you are insulated against this type of thing an emergency preparedness mindset and having the appropriate attitude, what that does is that changes that whole landscape for you. And you're now thinking through the lens of emergency preparedness. When you look at events that occur around the world, it just isn't about a stockpile of rice and beans in your basement. It's about how have I set up my financial life? How have I set up my family life? How have I set up my relationship life? Yes, okay, we're going to We're, we're going to do one of the segments that's going to be on emergency preparedness kit and equipment and supplies and a lot of the fallacy and lies that go along with that. We're much more concerned about you having the appropriate attitude because somebody who is earning minimum wage and working full time can be emergency prepared, can be resilient. Are they part of a vulnerable population? Absolutely. But they can be resilient. They can be self-reliant and they can be fully and ready prepared for a disruption such as losing their job. Okay, it's just going to be a little bit more difficult for them because of an access to resources, but it's certainly not impossible. So somebody can't sit here and tell you that, oh, I'm sorry, I make minimum wage and I can barely make my bills. I can't be emergency prepared. I'm sure. Listen, we could go all day and you could come up with 101 excuses why you don't want to engage and become a more resilient, self-reliant individual. Or you could look at, okay, this is the situation I'm in. What are the avenues and approaches that I can take? And it depends on your viewpoint through your lens. Are you a victim or are you somebody who's looking to solve a solution? So that's what we're trying to get at in this. And that's your attitude that we're referring to. So before we go into discussion on the government, I think it's really important that we we define a couple of quick terms because you'll hear them all over the place, right? You hear people call emergencies and disasters and they use them synonymously. And for you, it may be a synonymous name. I mean, the disaster and emergency may be the very same thing, but I think it's important for to offer you what academics and what for the most part, not completely homogeneously, but for the most part, academia and the professional cadre of workers kind of agree on these terms. So a hazard is something that, if realized, will cause significant disruption and damage to an individual's life or lifestyle or things around them. So a hazard could be an earthquake. You could be living on a fault line, and that and the earthquake itself is considered a hazard, even though it hasn't happened. So the phrase you'll hear a lot in 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 professional speak, is realization of the hazard and mitigation of the hazard. So when they use the word hazard, they just mean we know we live on a fault line. We have a hazard of an earthquake, something called an emergency. So think of a framework. An emergency is something that causes you to change your normal operations of your day and your normal business, but is within your capacity to handle. So if you're a city and you have a major incident in the city and you have to enact your emergency plans, but you have the resources necessary to take care of it, that's an emergency. A disaster in professional and academic terms is when the incident uh, basically exceeds your capacity to deal with it and therefore you have to get resources from higher higher de- government. So uh, an emergency, when it turns into a disaster for say the city of Halifax, it now becomes an emergency for the province of Nova Scotia because the province of Nova Scotia is now disrupted from its normal activity to provide resources to the city of Halifax. If the province of Nova Scotia needs to go to the federal government to ask for resources, then it now becomes a disaster for the province of Nova Scotia and it becomes an emergency for a federal department. If the federal department ask for external international help, then it's now a Canadian disaster. And you can just see how that works. It's just important to understand that nomenclature that's thrown around, that in normal speak, who cares? I mean, there's between you and I, we don't care whether the difference between disaster and emergency. But if you're actually studying and reading up on this, you do need to know the difference between those terms because they're not used interchangeably in academia. What I want to do next is is give you a very quick rundown on, uh, in Canada, what the government structure looks like. Uh, Not because I'm trying to make you experts on it, not because I really think it's worthwhile getting into detail, but I think it's important for you to understand what the government is trying to achieve, how it's built its framework, how it operates, and just, you know, to give you a bit of comfort that, you know, at least in this country, in the government of Canada, there's exceptionally well laid out... Uh, framework. Uh, there are a lot of holes in it, and there are a lot of problems with it, and we will definitely deal with that, but I think it's important to just understand the basic of the framework that we have in Canada. So, so we have the Emergency Management Act, last revised in 2017, uh, that gives the federal government certain set of powers that it would need to have to address a national emergency. Um, in detail, there's a whole bunch of little things that they have to do to enact it in the province. They have to send letters to the, to the different provinces. Um, it has to be done by a vote in the House of Commons. It can't simply be enacted by a declaration of emergency by the federal government. There's a lot of other things. But just so you know, there is a legislative piece of work that you can look up at the Justice Department or on uh, Public Safety Canada website to actually read it there's something called a federal emergency response plan or the FERP which is an internal coordination within the federal government it's basically a plan that all of the 48 or 49 government agencies and government departments all have a requirement to have emergency plans and basically it's run by the government of canada emergency operations center that's in the basement of a high rise in downtown ottawa and it basically allows the federal government to manage its internal workings to make sure that it as an organization is functioning then there's the national emergency response system called the NERS we have the FERP and the NERS well the NERS is all about uh, federal provincial and territorial coordination and this is done fairly regularly they update this this is the whole standard agreement as to how they will talk to each other what departments in each level of government will talk to each other how they will analyze and the problem in the situation when they will hand off authority from one level of government to another how the resource requests will go where the resource requests will go basically it's an exceptionally well laid out uh framework structure that allows the territories the provinces and the federal government to operate in time of an emergency so they all know what to do when something happens canada has a national platform for disaster risk reduction um it's done at an annual round table it's it's basically a round table speak for you have professionals academics and public policy analysts and public servants getting together and talking about how we can do disaster risk reduction which i'll talk about in a second um but it just occurs And in 2019, uh, Canada released an uh, emergency management strategy for Canada toward a resilient 2030. It's basically mapped, the documents map very, very closely off the UA, uh, the United Nations Sendai framework that was signed in 2015 that goes out to 2030 that is meant to follow up in the Hyogo framework that was signed back in 2005, sorry, following the tragic incidents of the uh, 20 2004 boxing day um, tsunami earthquake off banda Aceh that killed about a quarter million people and the absolute haphazard crazy totally uncoordinated uh, international response to that uh they built together a disaster risk reduction strategy of the united nations so anyhow this is canada's map uh, but at the federal government, for you as an individual, which is the focus of this podcast, there is a Be Prepared program. It was launched in 2003 under a social marketing and the goal of this was to address the individuals in Canadian society and, and give them the tools and try to help them become more resilient and more prepared individuals. So the government has tried to do that. Uh, it got a lot of great fanfare, a lot of uh, a lot of funding in 2003, 2004, out to about 2005. And it's pretty much not been touched for about the last 15 years, but it does exist and there's a lot of great information which means it's great for uh, people that are interested in emergency preparedness can go and seek out the information. Unfortunately, that information is not well communicated to people who are not currently interested in emergency preparedness and the kind of people we would like to reach. But like anything else, there's a couple of problems that exist in the Government of Canada's uh, paperwork. And I'll just read a quote from here from Public Safety Canada. And it says, although hazards cannot be completely prevented, we can help prevent the likelihood of these hazards becoming disasters through risk-appropriate measure. Wrong. The use of the word prevented is not supported in literature, it's not supported in academia, and you only see it in government. Never ever use the word prevent because you can't prevent a disaster from happening. Can you mitigate? Yes. Can you take a lot of measures to lessen the impacts? Absolutely. Can you prevent an earthquake? No can you prevent a flood no you cannot you can mitigate it but you can't prevent it it is similar if you've ever worked in a bank or work with a bank the bank goes through work emails and looks for the word guarantee because nothing in a bank's industry is guaranteed so any employee that uses the word guarantee in communications it gets immediately flagged by the software from the bank and then that needs to be addressed immediately because there's no guarantees. There's not a guaranteed return on anything in an investment. And therefore, that makes logical sense that they would go after that word. So it just gives you an idea that the government has a great framework and a great idea and they want to support the Canadian people, as do all other governments. But they're using a lot of words that make it sound like they can do things that they absolutely, under all circumstance, under any circumstances, cannot so the last thing that I want to touch on is this idea that is in government for something called disaster risk reduction. And like I said, it is a big, it's, a, it, it's just a, this huge key phrase that has come out of uh, first the Hyogo framework, uh, then in the Sendai framework, and you'll see it across a lot of the literature, disaster risk reduction from an, an individual perspective. And this is the whole point of this podcast. You as an individual, it, it matters not because disaster risk reduction only works for regular and predictable events mitigating known or foreseen effects of something that you can count on. If you live next to the St. John River in New Brunswick, you know that sucker floods. Okay, so disaster risk reduction is all about taking measures to mitigate the effects of the river that you know will flood. Every year the flooding level may be different, but it floods every year. The same thing with the Ottawa River, the same with the Bow River in Calgary, the same with the Fraser River that you see in B.C., Those are known events that happen regularly. We know Halifax and the East Coast and St. John's get smoked with a hurricane every once in a while. Those are regular and predictable things that you can take mitigation measures toward. However, what really you've seen a change in the literature and academia and a lot of scholars are coming out and talking about principally some key work that was done in 2018, so it's quite recent, is stepping away from disaster risk reduction pretty much abandoning the phrase and moving towards something called disaster impact reduction. And why is this important for individual emergency preparedness? Because disaster impact reduction, it's all about the impacts on your life. We're trying to reduce the effects of the impacts. Really, we don't care. And let's just be simple. If your power goes out, does it really matter to you why the power went out? No, you want the power back on. You want to know how long it's going to be off. And you want to take the emergency preparedness steps to make sure that you're you're going to live quite comfortably and quite happily during that period that the power is off. So is the reason why that occurred important to you? No, it's not. But what is important to you is how quickly you can resume normalcy as you understand normalcy to be. How does your life get back to the way it should be? And it, And in the end, when we study all of this stuff, this is what we're trying to remember for you. Individual emergency preparedness is all about you returning to normalcy or being as normal as possible during a disruption. So today we've talked about philosophy, lenses, theoretical frameworks, how you look at the world. And we've really tried to communicate the message that individual emergency preparedness, first and foremost, is your attitude. When you see an event happen in the world, you pick the fact out of the noise that you hear from the media and you look at that fact and you ask yourself simple questions. How does this affect me? If it affects me, how will it affect me? What preparations do I need to take or what changes to my preparations do I need to make to ensure that the effects of this happening to me are as mitigated as possible and it has the least disrupted effect on what I would like to do? That's the principal question that we're trying to get you to ask, but it's an attitude question. And the answer to that question is never going to be solved by volumetrics of equipment or skill sets. It's your attitude. It's your brain. It's your focus. It's how you look at the world. And hopefully that message was made clear today. Your next episode that's coming at you is going to be a detailed look at why people aren't prepared. So we're going to look at demographics emerging, emergency kits, other falsehoods you hear out there. And basically, we're going to build you the picture that tells you why, in general, Canadians are not prepared for disasters, how they think, how they operate, how they view things. We're going to put that together for you. And I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see what you might think influences preparedness behavior. It's probably not what you think. So join us in about a week for that. And just a sneak little pin, episode three of this uh, series on individual emergency preparedness. It's entitled No One's Coming to Help. It's going to be a very detailed discussion on exactly how limited your municipal and provincial authorities are in their ability to help you out in times of emergency, how little is actually going to come to your aid, which should be an eye-opener for you to realize, hold on a second here, I think this individual emergency preparedness thing is fairly important. So thank you very much for joining us here at Inside My Canoe Head. We appreciate your time. We understand it's your most valuable commodity you have. And hopefully you'll join us in about a week for episode number two. Until then, have yourself a great time and stay safe.